up. Um, we're recording this the week after Juneteenth. And that's kind of what this episode is hopefully going to focus on. Uh, kind of, why don't you explain what uh, Juneteenth is? Sure. So Juneteenth commemorates the reading of an order by the U.S. Army in, I think it's Galveston, Texas, in 1865 that freed the slaves there. So the U.S. Civil War had just finished at this point. And this was one of the few places left in the country where slaves had not been formally freed yet. And that's what happened on June 19th, 1865. Yeah. Um, And one thing that I think not a lot of people know or are aware of is that the Civil War never actually started because Abraham Lincoln wanted to liberate the slaves. He started it because he wanted to prevent the expansion of slavery and the Confederate States didn't like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So Abraham Lincoln won the 1860 presidential election and basically the Southern States took that as their signal to secede from the United States. And then a month or two later, they attacked Fort Sumter, which set off the Civil War. Yeah. Um, And essentially, I guess history was revised as saying that Abraham Lincoln initially wanted to free the slaves, even though that was something that happened after the Southern states decided they wanted to turn it into a Civil War. Nonetheless, what happened in the 13th Amendment specifically was it outlawed slavery but there was a tiny loophole in it that said, except as punishment for a crime. And this tiny loophole is basically the basis for the entire mass incarceration system in the United States today, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, so what comes out of that is people figuring out how they can keep slaves as long as the slaves are prisoners. And what follows from that is things like the perception of black people being more prone to crime um, is born. Yeah, so right after that, essentially what happened was, so like to lay the groundwork, black people were a critical part of the economy in the South by being free labor, essentially. And when they were freed, the southern states needed to recapture that free labor. They needed that that economy back, right? They didn't have any way to make their money if the slaves weren't going to provide it. So what they did was they said essentially, okay, black people are now criminals, right? Like you said. And that kicked off a series of incarcerations that was simply like, you can get arrested for loitering or some minor offense like that. And that even included things like convict leasing, right? Which is basically you can trade convicts from prison to prison for money, which is essentially, again, slavery, right? Uh, and so that's that system, uh, even though there, I don't think there's convict le- leasing today, there is no convict leasing today, but that system has still continued. And we've seen the most recent, 
I guess, use of it was in Rikers where I think, what was it? Cuomo said he wanted, he got the prisoners to make hand sanitizer, which oh. was like in stark corporate, stark con, like contrast to the lack of health care and medical care and attention that they were receiving in the prison itself. Yeah, like it, you know, it, it might be illegal today, but it's still happening. You can call it what you want. Um, there, there's still for-profit prisons. So prisons that use prisoner labor to sell products and to manufacture things. Sometimes it's even like literally cotton agriculture. So the, the, um, the message there is pretty clear. And it's, yeah. it's widespread. This is something we're still dealing with today. Yeah, exactly. Um, so to go back, th- this ties in, like we mentioned it last episode when talking about police brutality, but this men- this ties in very heavily into police brutality uh, and the way that police institution is corrupt, right? Because it enforces an unjust system of laws. So 1865 through now, a quick history or summary would be that after Jim Crow um, or during Jim Crow, you had plenty of black people and African-Americans just imprisoned for no reason, which is again, very reminiscent of imprisoning a black person for resisting arrest or some like trumped up charge like that nowadays. Uh, And then they were put into, I guess, the ecosystem of slavery and all the way through to even arresting them for breaking the laws in Martin Luther King's movements, which is like sitting in where you weren't allowed to sit in, right? Yes. Or drinking at a fountain that wasn't (laughs) yours to drink out of. Sitting at the front of the bus. Yeah, exactly. And that's essentially where the police institutions come into play because they ultimately have to enforce these laws, right? And that's what we mean by when we say the justice system is inherently broken. And there's a lot more detail and a lot more intricacies into how corrupt it is, I guess, in modern day times, because back then it was a lot easier to see. Like black people weren't allowed to vote. They they had separate fountains. It was a lot easier to see the inherent racism in the system. Right. Whereas now, every time they try to reform it, they essentially repackage it to be a little bit more politically correct, but still maintaining that element of racism. Right. So I guess what I wanted to talk about was, Connor, have you seen the the documentary, The 13th? Yeah, I have. I watched it a couple of weeks ago. It was really good. Yeah, it was devastating because you look at it and then there was one statistic that stood out, um, which is one in three black men were going to be in prison in their lifetime, right? Which is like one in three is, is not something you can control anymore. That's, that's just a chance of something happening to you. That's not even something you can work around. Like that's like, if somebody told me, Hey, there's a one in three chance you're going to fail your driver's license test. That's a reasonable statistic. You know, one in three chance of being in prison. That's abhorrent. I saw a good, I think it was some Instagram post today, but it basically said 
you can say the problem is intrinsic, which means black people are genetically or naturally more prone to commit crimes, which obviously is racist. Or you can look at the problem as extrinsic, which means they're over-policed and sentences are harsher for them, etc., which means the system is racist. So if you're not a racist and you recognize that there is a problem, you have to recognize that the system itself is racist. Yeah, exactly. And when we look at the current landscape of police brutality or the current landscape of the justice system, one very recent case, there's two elements I want to look at, right? One is like the rate of incarceration of black people and people of color into the prison system and how that came to be, right? And that started off with Richard Nixon when he started the war on drugs, right? And that was like a very famous catchphrase that kind of kicked off and brought back that image of black people as being criminals and monsters and animalistic, right? Right. Yeah, I don't know if I would say it started with Nixon, but that's probably, it's a good example of where the, this modern terminology started that we still see today. And plenty of presidential advisors came out later and they admitted that these tactics were used specifically to target black people and sometimes hippies. Yeah. Right. And one thing that famously kind of ruined the black communities was the introduction of something of crack cocaine. Uh, it was basically an introduction of crack. And because it was so prevalent in communities of color, Ronald Reagan put in sentences that was that were much harsher for that than for regular cocaine, which was kind of what white people were more commonly doing at the time. Right. Like you can very commonly and very often hear stories of all these celebrities in Hollywood doing cocaine, mm -hmm. but you don't ever like, and it's kind of like a running joke. It's like, Oh, you, your dad grew up in the eighties. He must've, must've done a lot of coke. You know what I mean? It just has a completely different like image in the media. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's, that's because the media is like state apparatus they're all working on this stuff together, the government, the media, the elites. But yeah, like the, the crack versus cocaine example is a great one because it's a very clear, it, it's discriminatory justice, right? You're given, you're giving different sentences to different people for doing the same thing only because of the color of their skin. It's like a feedback loop. What What's an interesting topic is, you know, people are always saying r racism, uh, you know, most people acknowledge that it still exists, but most people also say it's a lot better today than it was 100 years ago or 50 years ago. And, you know, that seems like a true statement on the face of it. We, we don't see as many outwardly racist things happening in society today. We drink from the same water fountains. We take the same buses. But 
think about functionally what's the difference between between just straight up charging someone with a crime because they're black versus charging someone for crack and not cocaine like functionally there's no difference it's just that you have to go a level deeper to understand what's really going on and that's kind of where we're at today it's like yeah nothing you know well i don't want to say nothing has changed but things are not close to equal but on the surface they kind of seem equal Absolutely. Like this is all, like you said, it's legalized slavery at the end of the day. And going back to the point about like what kind of kicked it off was that after Reagan kicked off that war on drugs, there was one election that happened where I guess being tough on crime was such a central point to the election that the following election when Bill Clinton was running, he ran on a campaign of also being tough on crime. So this is kind of the point where Democrats and Republicans started to converge in their racism. Yeah, it's a bipartisan issue. We can all agree. Yeah, (laughs) we can all. (laughs) Yeah, so that that, that was kind of like, and that's essentially the the, the term that the crime bill was written and signed off. So not only was Joe Biden the person who wrote it, Bill Clinton was the person who signed off on it. Both Democrats, right? And it should be noted that Bill Clinton defended that crime bill, I think, as recently as 2012 or 2015. You know what I mean? It's not like he saw the incarceration rate go up so tremendously and recognized that it was wrong. You know, he he has since then been like, oh, that wasn't that was a mistake. We should have done it differently. Right. But again, even that is that line of thought was being pushed by corporations right yeah yeah exactly like you know you know obama right obama was the first president in history to visit a prison while he was in office so that says a lot obviously but obama didn't reform the justice system he didn't shut down for-profit prisons. Um, so, yeah, like this this is a bipartisan issue. Democrats and Republicans, a lot of the things they disagree on are like shiny things that like don't actually matter. They don't actually make a difference in someone anyone's life, but they all agree on, you know, war and imperialism. They all agree on law and order. They all agree on on corporations, etc. Yeah, exactly. And we can go to today and look at legalized marijuana, right? Where marijuana specifically, historically, has been a drug that Black people were very often convicted for. They were arrested and convicted for it to long sentences, again brought on by the 1994 crime bill, which had mandatory sentences. Right. Right? So these guys were thrown in for years, almost double digits in some cases, or often double digits in some cases, for having some ridiculous amount of marijuana, like ridiculously small. Right? 
and then it became legalized, right? And when it became legalized, corporations got their hands on it. Like they got hands on the licensing, right? And now something like, I think it was like 5% of dispensaries are black owned. You know what I mean? So they took that entire marijuana industry and flipped it on its head. Where they essentially took something that was always, I guess, created or visualized as this black owned industry. And then they took that from them put them in prison for it and then profited off of it. Yeah. Like they really, they profited off marijuana twice. First they profited off your labor when you're in prison for having it or allegedly having it. Maybe it was planted on you by a cop. And then later they just dominate the industry and they take advantage of it. That's a, that's a good example. Yeah, exactly. The biggest points to drive that home is that there are politicians, or I guess former politicians, who opposed the legalization of marijuana and then came back and became major stakeholders in that industry, right? So the same people, it wasn't like this weird community shift where Republicans were against the legalization and then white Democrats are the ones profiting off of it. No, it's the same people who oppose that legalization are the ones that are now profiting off of it very directly. Yeah, like I guarantee that little provision in the 13th Amendment was not, uh, you know, just like a, a slip of the mind on on the part of who whoever wrote it it was probably like a concerted effort by former plantation owners to have that added oh yeah 100% i agree with you there's there's no way that that was an accident and even when we look at like i guess the the founding corporation behind it and i know you know this the founding i guess lobbyist force behind a lot of these laws in the modern day, it was a firm called Alley, right? Which is American Legislative Exchange Council, which is this basically like very legal out and out firm, right? Or organization that has private sector representatives and politicians working hand in hand. And The weird thing is, if you go to Wikipedia, it tells you it's the American Legislative Exchange Council is a nonprofit organization of conservative state legislators and private sector representatives who draft and share model state legislation for distribution among state governments in the United States. Right now, the weird thing about that is that it's not conservative state legislators. ALEC has influenced even Democratic legislators and governors and lawmakers like those all of those rulings or laws that bill clinton put in or bill clinton passed and he's a democrat he's supposedly one of the more progressive people you know what i mean yeah yeah like it's i i guess if you're listening to this the point we're trying to drive home here is this is all legal uh the so-called left and the so-called right parties support it. And it's not okay and people need to know about it. Yeah, 
And this kind of goes to goes back to the entire, I guess, idea of voting for this specific change, right? And the problem with it, the problem with voting for an issue like this, when it's so deep-rooted, right? When it's so deep-rooted into the corporations and the foundation and the economy of the country, is that because it's bipartisan, like you mentioned, both parties don't want it to change. Voting isn't going to fix it because there is no representative that's campaigning. I mean, yes, both, I guess both parties are campaigning to a degree on justice reform. But even that justice reform, I mean, like it's been reformed before. It was reformed in 1865. It was reformed in 19, in the 1960s. It was reformed in the 1970s. It was reformed in 1994, right? Like the whole justice system has been reformed. It's had those like elected officials take a look at it. Yeah. It's, you know, and it's never getting better. So one of the first things the United States did after it came into being was set up this thing called the three fifths compromise. And what that meant was that for tax and government purposes, one black person was equivalent to three fifths of a white man. And the reason this was enacted was that was so that Southern slave owning states would have like disproportionate power in terms of taxes they get from the federal government. And in terms of the number of representatives they send to Congress and the Senate. So, you know, like we were just talking about, like, this history goes right to the beginning of like the whole country. And exactly the point Salah was just making, you can't vote this out. Now, now if you look at the justice system, the way it's set up currently, right? When you have the number of black people that and people of color that are being arrested for crimes, petty crimes and misdemeanors and things like that, um, and they are being put in for entirely far too long sentences for what they've committed. That's one very large part of the justice system. And then the second part is that even the, like, I think it was something like 97% of the people who are sentenced don't even go to trial. So it's not yeah. even justice. It's just... Yeah, I remember that. Statistic. Yeah, it was literally like, how, how do you say, it's like a conveyor system. It's not a justice system, you yeah. know, because not everybody's even getting a trial. No, how, Most people aren't getting a trial. How can you have justice when there's so few judges and public defenders that 97% of people, like it doesn't even have the capacity to handle 97% of the people that go through it. How can you possibly say that justice is consistently applied across that system? Yeah. So when you look at it that way, it's not just that the justice. So I want to point out one thing that we've been saying, which is that, oh, the justice system is broken. I don't think it is. I think that's that's a false statement. The justice system is working exactly as designed. The justice yeah. system is corrupt. 
Yeah, that, right? that's a better way to phrase it for sure. It it's it's a very well working machine if you're someone who benefits from it. Exactly. And when we say all cops are bastards, right? This is not to say, oh, this is not limiting to the way they treat their communities, right? This is not limiting to, oh, all cops are bastards because they don't speak up when like a cop brutalizes somebody else. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's not it. The entire reason all cops are bastards is because they are the enforcing arm of a corrupt justice system. When you have 97% of people that don't go to trial, what that means is 97% of people, 40% of whom are black males, by the way, that means the cops arrest them. And he says, hey, man, if you say you did this, I'll let you get off with like three years in prison instead of 15 if you go to a trial. Basically, he's like, if you make me do more work to prove that you are innocent, right, I'm going to make sure that I find you guilty. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Uh, So what the weird thing that happens is this dude is basically like, listen, um, I know, like, he knows his crime. He's like, your crime deserves three years if you say you did it. But if you make me do work, that's 15 years. I'm going to do my best to make it 15 years. That's insanity. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. how the plea bargain system works. Like the the law is a funny thing because you know when you recognize that there's billions and billions of variables that are input into any situation in real life, then the only reasonable thing to do, the only reasonable thing you can apply across all situations is to say something like okay, this judge needs to assess the facts themselves and they need to get the context and they need to make a decision about what should apply in this specific situation, which makes sense logically, right? You, you can't say, okay, guy kills other guy. Everyone gets five years for doing that. But the problem is then you, if you want justice, then you have to have the assumption that every judge is acting in a way that would achieve justice. And, you know, obviously that's impossible. So, uh, and the, I, I think the real problem is not that it's that there is no accountability. No one ever questions decisions judges make. No one ever audits them. Um, same thing for cops. There's, there's no like standards that really need to be followed. There's no guidelines. There's also, you know, data now, now they can say, now the prosecutor can say, I've arrested six people this month. And that goes into figuring out my compensation and my bonus and the likelihood of my promotion. Um, It goes into the police department's database to justify a new tank they want to buy next year. Uh, It goes into political narratives about where our tax dollars should go, who you should be, who you should be afraid of, 
it it goes into new laws that usually corporations come up with and are passed. So, you know, the like we said earlier, the system is beneficial for a lot of people, just not us, just not most of the people. Yeah. And like to, to point out, there's been there there have been a lot of corporations that were benefiting from this whole prison labor system. It wasn't Oh yeah. Some of them it wasn't like I, I was very surprised because I thought it was like, okay, like who's been like TV repair companies or something like who's benefiting from prison labor? Because you would have assumed it would have been widely reported. But like JC Penny was benefiting, Pepsi right. was benefiting, Microsoft was benefiting, like giants. Yeah. Giants were literally yeah. using slavery. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you know, it was, it was, you know, some people will hear that and make the argument, yeah, but every company exploits labor on some level, which is true. I I agree with that, but it's not like state-sanctioned, state-enforced labor or institutions doing it. You know what I mean? Like if it's a private corporation that's treating people like crap, then that's bad and, it, and it's worthy of com- condemnation. But when it's our own government doing it with our own tax dollars and our own votes, we need to focus on that first. And demand change. Yeah, exactly. One thing to point out, when we talked about all these reforms that were being put in place, right, and how they essentially always worked to repress people, even as recently as the Voting Rights Act that Martin Luther King brought around, even that they said, okay, you can vote, but convicts can't vote. So again, they they gave you like that hope, that semblance of a right. And then they took it away from you and focused on imprisoning you or criminalizing you to make sure that you did not have that right. You know, so like if you look at it first, it was the the slavery. They took that out, right? They're like, okay, you, you're still going to be a slave. And then they gave you voting rights. And then they're like, okay, you're still not going to have voting rights. It is one thing to say like, oh, this is com- like it's largely class based and it's like a capitalist system and all of that. And that's absolutely true. But we can't also imply that it's not very, very much a racist system. And it's, I guess, intentionally racist. You know, it is intentionally targeting Black people because not giving them the right to vote doesn't necessarily have a short-term capitalist impact. It might have a long-term capitalist impact because you can't get Black people to vote for their interests, right? But... At the time, it was completely motivated motivated by not giving black people that right to vote. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I think what it really comes down to is people in, in the U.S. almost exclusively among all nations of the world don't think in class terms, they think in race terms. And I think that's because since the inception of the country class has largely been like highly correlated to race because of the history of slavery. So these things are very linked like class and race in America. So I think 
saying, um, as some people I admire do say, actually, that this is more of a class issue than a race issue. That might be true in like, in abstract terms and generally all over the world. But in the US, I think it's just as much of a race issue as a class issue. And I think that a lot of people who say the higher ups, the, the elite want you to think it's a race issue and not a class issue. That's like partially yes, but you're also kind of invalidating the fact that it is a race issue. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it, it can be both. I mean, they're, I don't think they're saying that because they think they're mutually exclusive or anything. I think they're saying it because they want people to wake up and become class conscious, which is great. And, and I want that to happen too. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest parts of this whole police brutality thing, right, was that a lot of white people came out and said, hey, look, they kill white people too. And it's like, yeah, you should be on board with us. Like you should be protesting with us, not defending the people who are murdering you. Yeah, you like know? Uh, Felix from Chapo Trap House said something funny about that. So that, you know, there's this video that came out a few years ago, this disgusting video of this cop shooting this white guy in a hotel hallway and killing him. And some loser right-wing guy tweeted about that. And he said, you know, white people weren't riding when this happened. And Felix said, if anything, that just means like white people have no self-respect. You know, they shouldn't be as angry about this stuff as black folks are. What was the guy's name in Sacramento? Something Stevens, right? The guy who got shot, he was like 22 years old. He was shot, killed, right? And his brother came into like this city council hall and stood on the table. And then these cops like rushed him. And immediately like these two or three white people just like surrounded him, right? And the cops just didn't even, they couldn't even get close. You can't pretend that at the end of the day, cops don't have very different, viscerally different reactions to black people and white people when you see something like that. Because two people are doing an identical action, right? And it's not like he even arrested the white people for standing on the table and interrupting. He only wanted to arrest the black guy. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And he wanted to arrest him violently. And now I, I want to end this, this episode on kind of a good note. Um, you saw the elections most recently, right? Or was it Senate or Congress? I think it was Congress in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Where AOC stuff. got reelected. A yeah. Let me, let me name some off. We had AOC just destroy her district and Y14. She won almost 75% of the total vote, despite her rival who was supported by Wall Street and Republicans. She was a Democrat, by the way, but Republicans hate AOC so much they were donating to a Democrat to unseat her. Then in, I think it's NY16, we saw Jamal Bowman elected, who is going to replace Elliot Engel, who is a huge 
guy yelling and whining about Ilhan Omar being anti-Semitic. So he was also a big hawk on Iran uh, and advocated for the Iraq war. So great to see him go. We, we had a Mondaire Jones just elected in NY 15 or 17. I forget which one. Another big victory. But yeah, like things are getting really good in New York. We might have to move there. I'm hopeful. Like I know we said 20 minutes ago, vote like voting doesn't work. But I, I think when you combine it, so we'll put it this way. Voting alone doesn't work. But when you combine it with a mass movement, like we're seeing now with the George Floyd protests um, and the other stuff going on, coronavirus, you do, you can elect the right people. The problem is when people, you know, only tune in for two weeks every four years, you're guaranteed to not elect good people because if if you haven't been paying attention for four years, these people have been fundraising and they're going to be $10 million ahead of whoever the good candidate is. So you need to- Yeah, I think, like one, yeah I think that one thing to note is that you need those, those riots and those protests to shape the candidate and their policies that you can vote for. So 100%. We should be voting, right? Yeah. So that's just that's just one thing. Stay in the streets and vote. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profits Over Profits. It's been a, it's been a pleasure with me and Connor. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.